Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom podcast. I am your host, Michaela Carlin, and I am so excited to be having this show today. Um, I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Cohen. Stephanie, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Stephanie Cohen, and I'm a former journalist turned... um, I used to cover New York City and a lot of things in New York, and now I cover consciousness and the psyche and the deeper questions of the true nature of reality. And I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. And we're here with Dr. Angelo DeLula, who is, I would say, our non-dual teacher. And I'm so happy to be here with you. We're coming. um, We're actually here in Denver today because we just finished the psychedelic science conference that MAPS put on. So we landed upon you here in your home today. Thank you for having us. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. So nice to be here with you in person. Nice to meet you. Um, So why don't we just start off with, since we are coming off of the psychedelic conference, and both Stephanie and I have felt that psychedelics have been part of a beginning kind of awakening of changing our perspectives about things. How do you feel that psychedelics and consciousness intersect? Mm. Do they? Psychedelics and consciousness. Well, consciousness is sort of the raw material for experience. It's the raw material for experiencing our perceptions of the world. It's the raw material for experiencing our thoughts and beliefs, our thoughts and beliefs about ourselves, as well as our thoughts and beliefs about the world, about reality. Uh, it's the, the medium for our, our experience of emotions and interpretations of emotions. Uh, and ultimately, with the right insight, we see that it's also the source of the sense of being, the, sor- the source of the sense of I or even I am. This is consciousness. Um, psychedelics, I think, give many or probably in the right setting, most users the first glimpse that something about the way they're experiencing consciousness or something about the way they had learned to experience consciousness in their adult life uh, was other than um, completely uh, real, I guess, is the best way I can say it, that that the way we experience consciousness when we are what I might just call thought-identified or concept-identified, uh, we don't realize the extent to which we're actually binding our perception into a very narrow way of thinking, experiencing, feeling, etc., so, uh, and this is just one very specific way consciousness is experienced or, or let's say used, but there are vastly uh, different, more expanded ways of experiencing consciousness. And important to what I'm interested in, there's one very important primary way to experience consciousness that is primary to uh, and fundamental to any other way of experiencing consciousness, and that is as consciousness completely unbound by any identity structure. So I think uh, psychedelics often give people the first taste of that or the first suspicion that there's something far more going on, even in the moment-to-moment mundane experience of life, than you would normally believe experiencing that narrow band of consciousness we call mind identification or just being human, whatever that means. And this is all very reinforced through social conditioning, through social... Uh, interactions with other people. It's deeply buried in our language. It's deeply buried in our thought. These beliefs in a separate self, me, the separate self, engaging a separate world, all completely separate from me, myriad entities in that world, problems and solutions, 
living on a timeline, all of that can feel quite binding, but that is all just one narrow experience or one narrow band of the way consciousness can be experienced. So uh, beyond that, there's potential in, in what I talk about for what I would say is a significant shift or alteration in one's identity or the way one experiences identity. And it's a shift in one specific direction, a shift from that narrow, um, very predefined, reasonably unconsciously constructed, meaning you don't choose to think this way and live this way, but we just kind of find ourselves here. A shift from that to uh, the experience of consciousness as a primary experience in all experiences. Uh, not something you're going to walk around and say, oh, I'm experiencing pure consciousness. It's just so completely intimate and obvious. There's nothing you need to say about it, but you know damn well that that narrow band of experience has somehow broken apart. And now the experience is vast, beyond boundary, beyond um, any sense of uh, fixation. And that's what I would call an awakening or in Buddhism might be called Kensho or Satori. Uh, I do, I used to not be convinced that that can happen with a psychedelic experience that that primary awakening can occur, but I've met enough people now that I know it does happen. It doesn't always happen. And people can mistake a, a very, very profound altered experience of consciousness for an awakening, but there is a significant difference and it's an important difference. But with all that said, I think psychedelics definitely give many people the first taste or the first glimmer of knowledge that that's possible. Uh, and on occasion, the, the actual awakening. And the awakening that I'm talking about is the first, it's actually the very first part of, of a very profound uh, unbinding process, unbinding from identity. We, before this shift, we'd have no idea how deep the identity illusion goes and how much illusion it adds to our experience of reality moment to moment. Is that a good answer? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you, have any, if you want to ask any more about it or whatever, please let me. Yeah, I mean, that was I just kind of a read. lot to absorb. And thank you. And Wow. And I, I guess because of the conference that we're coming out of and so much of our focus is on healing with psychedelics, I'm curious about that process, how you see either psychedelics or um, non-dual meditation and awakening as a, in some ways, maybe before, an, a full awakening, how it can be healing for for various like mental health issues that so many people are, you know, so much trauma that people are dealing with. Hmm. If that's something that resonates with you, yeah, work around uh, trauma, uh, healing, emotional wounds, uh, all of that comes into play with this process. There's often uh, a good amount of that before an initial shift or an, an initial awakening, and then after, there's going to be a lot of it, and it's going to be whether you like it or not. <laughs> You're kind of set to this task now of clearing out the, the, the shadow spaces that, that have been avoided only through habituation, not because you chose to or because you're guilty of anything at all, simply because that's the way our minds function and that, we're, that, that functioning is reinforced by social conditioning and subliminal communication among humans. Uh, so you're, you're, you're kind of set out to do quite a bit of that, especially if, after that initial awakening. Now, the different modalities there are, and there are many, and there are more and more, and we're becoming more just, I guess, broadly aware of the necessity for this as a society, which is really awesome. Uh, and each modality is actually being developed, especially psychedelics is something that was really shoved under the rug for a good several decades, uh, but now is coming to the forefront in many different settings and uh, fields, and it's becoming um, 
well studied in medicine and mental health and all of this. So that's great. That's one healing modality. There are physical somatic modalities. Um, there, are, there are all kinds of new ways of addressing this stuff. So you have a, a very large toolbox, uh, luckily, even in comparison to if you would have gone through this process 30 years ago. And that's great. Uh, with all that said, the fundamental wound that allows all of these wounds to, to occur, essentially, maybe not occur, but it, what allows all of these wounds to uh, remain in our consciousness, bouncing through the hallways of our memory, shaping the way we experience everything, causing us to fear life. What makes that possible is the fundamental misperception that I am separate from everything. Um, at some point, you will address that directly. At some point, you will actually engage that that fundamental misperception in a very, very direct way. This isn't the initial awakening. This is later down the road. Uh, from there, healing is a very, very different process. It's It doesn't mean that suddenly um, all resistance patterns, repressed emotions, so forth, just completely disappear. Although a vast amount of them do actually, kind of like ice thrown into the fire. Uh, it, with that said, there's always work to do beyond that. But it comes from a very different place, and it doesn't necessarily feel like healing um, because you realize there's nothing to heal. There's nothing that's ever gone wrong. Uh, there's nothing that needs to be fixed about anything or anyone. And from that place, it's a it's a place of deep and profound ongoing equanimity. Then, interestingly, all of the place, all of the the reasons that most of us took this whole investigation up in the first place, whether it's through psychedelics, through meditation, through awakening, inquiry, Buddhism, Zochen any of it, the, the suffering that pushed us into that in the first place, that made that necessary, when all is said and done in the way I'm speaking, that very suffering becomes the most interesting thing to you because you can't actually find it anymore. You can't find it as a an actuality, but you can see the signature of it. You can see how it affects people. Uh, and you become very interested in looking closer and closer and closer at those the energetics of it, actually, at a very subtle and granular level. Uh, and the realization is what allows that to, to even happen. And that's when the, the roots of suffering, the roots of what caused these core wounds and so forth, can be directly investigated and dissolved. So now the awakening that you're speaking of, the no self, no time, nowhere, nothing happening, is that similar to what Buddha talked about? Yeah, for sure. So what Buddha would have called um, anatta, uh, no self essentially in the in the Pali canon um, was referred to multiple times. Uh, Buddha walked around saying, look into your perceptions, there is no self. Look into consciousness, there is no self. Listen to sound, there is no self. Look at what's in front of your face, there's no self. So he, he endlessly pointed to this. Um, some would say, some scholars would say he stopped short of actually ever saying there is no self, which is probably accurate in my opinion, because if you say that, then it just gives somebody a concept to hold on to or potentially gives someone a concept to hold on to. But I think it's not really up for much debate among Buddhists or Buddhist scholars that really know what he was pointing to, uh, that this is ultimately what he's pointing to. But I want to make a distinction between what's up. Was Christ pointing to the same? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally think so. Yeah. Um, but I do want to make a distinction between the initial awakening, the initial shift I'm talking about, which is quite profound. It's 
with it, when you consider the contrast of what comes before and after it, and it happens often very quickly, actually, it happens like in a second or a less than a second. Um, the effects of it last a long time. But if you look at the contrast of how you say experience reality before and after it, it is the most profound thing anyone will go through. And I think anyone who's gone through this can probably say that. Even the later stages of realization, they, in some ways, you could say they are more profound in the way they affect perception, but they're not as, they're not as so much in the sense of what a big surprise it is. Because this first shift is such a big surprise. Even when you think you know what it's going to be, even when you've learned about it, even when you've heard about it, even when you've been practicing thinking you're going to get something and whatever you're imagining you're going to get out of it, when that's blown out of the water and, you, and it's actually revealed, it's always surprising in some sense by nature. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal. With that said, uh, that is, like I said, the beginning. And when we talk about anatta, no self-realization, that's a very deep stage of realization. And there's, there are shifts that come between those that are important. And so kind of a psychedelic journey where someone feels, whether it's a 5-MeO-DMT experience or an ayahuasca experience, and they feel suddenly that there's the reality that they thought they were in, this dream waker reality that some people call it, is not really reality. Would you call those a first awakening? No. No. I, I wouldn't necessarily call that a first awakening. It, it would depend on what happens after the experience. So how would you so, find a first So a momentary experience. So, so let me say it this way. Um, what awakening is not is it's not an experience. That's really important because an experience happens to an experiencer and the experiencer remains intact. You can have some incredibly profound experiences and psychedelics are probably the number one way to do it uh, voluntarily, let's say. Uh, there are other ways of having extremely altered way, uh, states of consciousness as well. Uh, but psychedelics are that's their um that's their specialty is causing altered states of consciousness and through those altered states of consciousness often what is truly uh unconditioned the, the unconditioned is revealed through those experiences what i found from my own experiences and just working with many many people is often what gets intermix what gets misinterpreted is that the the alterations themselves, the altered states of consciousness, which again can be extremely profound, or even the healing that results from it can be believed to be or even experienced to be the same as the realization itself. And they're not actually. Because the realization can stand on its own. You can have the experience of complete boundlessness with no psychedelics on board at all. And you actually described that to me before we started recording. And it's yeah. different. Once that happens, it's like, okay, you see how that's... It's it's not... It, the, the psychedelic experience itself is really a taste for sure it's a taste of reality unfiltered by the conditioned mind but it's still an alteration in consciousness it's still consciousness it's still identity being derived from consciousness in some confirmation yes um if that is profound enough and most importantly i don't think it's as, as much how deep you go or what what medicine you use or whatever i think it's probably a little more karmic it's the person that's doing it some people are just set up for it and that will actually lead to a true alteration in identity that doesn't go back doesn't change you don't come up out the other side going, wow, I had the most amazing journey. Let me tell you about it. Right. right? Like you you just collected another experience. No matter how profound that experience is, if the experiencer themselves is still intact, it's not an awakening. Does that make sense? Yes. So you can have a complete mind-blowing ego death experience, no content whatsoever, no sense of self, boundaries, or body, and then wake up and that's gone. That, that experience is gone other than a memory. You may feel some energetics that remain around after it. Uh, and some people... Uh, I think do have a sort of awakening with that, as I mentioned. Um, but 
I think it's a little unpredictable, like so many things are with awakening. And we can talk about other ways to approach it. So you can approach it through self-inquiry, through different practices. Self-inquiry is probably one of the best, or if not the best. Uh, but even then, I, there's no like guarantee it's going to take this long, or you have to ask this exact question. There's a there's a whole component to this that has to do with surrender. It has to do with your actual intention behind all of it, and your your intention ultimately has to be to go beyond self and every aspect of it, including the self that wants to have experiences, the self that wants to escape, the self that wants to heal. All of those are still aspects of the identity. And what we're talking about here is going completely beyond the whole paradigm of identity, wide awake, right? And and to differentiate, you know, consciousness being obliterated does not equal awakening, right? Because every night in deep sleep, your consciousness is obliterated. Not in dream sleep, but in deep sleep, your consciousness is, there's no content at some point um but you don't wake up enlightened right the same the same reason i say like some people believe if i meditate 18 hours a day for weeks and months and years like you know intense arduent ardent excuse me practice uh, that should equal enlightenment but by the same token you know uh, somebody who's an ultra marathoner doesn't mean they're enlightened just because they push themselves to extremes right? right so this so it's not really the method or even the experience that matters it's probably mostly the intention and, and your intention has to be 100% authentic with this, or you're you're crazy. You're crazy to engage this kind of stuff if you're if you're not authentic with what, where it's going to take you, because it's a very powerful transmission that we're. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned um, that. Speaking of intention, you going back a little bit, you had said a, a lot of what um, determines how that experience would go for you, like in a psychedelic journey. Um, would be some karma would be involved, mm. right? So then I guess I'm wondering what the role of karma and intention and like our soul, if you even believe that we have a soul, plays in whether or not we will awaken or not awaken or who awakens or mm. what's really happening in terms of that timeline. Yeah. So there's this very paradoxical thing about causality and and essentially direct experience, which finds no causality, right? Um Anyone, I'm 100% absolutely sure that anyone can wake up. It doesn't mean everyone will wake up. And it certainly doesn't mean everyone wants to wake up. And it doesn't mean everyone's going to wake up now or tomorrow or next week or in this lifetime. Um, but it's absolutely possible. When I say karmic, I, I mean this mostly from just observation that some people uh, seem very authentic and they, they seem to really want to wake up, but it can take them quite a while. Uh uh, and even if it does, so what? You know, it, it seems to have a, a cadence to it and a synchronicity. And often that person, even if they felt very impatient for several years, will say when it happens, it worked perfectly. It was the perfect timing. I needed it to go this way. I know I needed it to go this way, actually, because I wasn't ready for it before. Other people uh, will come in contact with a message like this or a certain experience or a tragedy in life, and they wake up very, very quickly. And when I look at that, I think probably some karmic, something karmic there. Uh, I but it, through experience, I, I really think it does work out the right way because that's a pretty devastating thing to go through as a a very profound awakening with no understanding of what it is. I've met a good number of people who've gone through awakening who don't have any understanding of spirituality, never done a psychedelic, literally nothing, and they didn't try, and it just happened, and. I've met people who ended up in psychiatric wards, people who just got really, really, really disoriented. So without the intention for it to happen, it can still happen. 
if you have the intention, it, it tends to smooth the process. It tends to not be such a devastating experience. But when it happens really fast, it's just a lot to go through for anyone. So there's no downside necessarily for it taking a while for somebody. I, I do know people who had, say, young children, and they, they just kind of instinctually knew they were interested. They engaged practice. They, they maybe meditated, did inquiry, whatever. But they really kind of waited till their children were taken care of or a little bit older and they could, you know, leave the house or something uh, and then let go at that point. I think it's something like people can decide when they die, when they're close to death. They, they'll wait till relatives come into town or wait till people say goodbye to them sometimes. Like we have some kind of uh, instinctual control perhaps in that way. But awakening is similar. Uh, Adi Shanti has a nice thing. He says that what he said, from what I've seen, people pretty much wake up when they decide to. And obviously that can, you know, mess with your head a little bit but today right <laughs> yeah when you really really want to wake up it, it seems to happen and it seems to happen reasonably quick so what motivates you to teach and to point people in the direction of waking up and self-realization in these deeper stages well the funny thing is uh if i'm really honest and i'll be really honest with you because i know you well um there's no motivation for that at all I don't have any motivation for mm -hmm. anything specific or this way or that way for anything to go at all, including in my own life. The, that, that's gone. There's no buy-in. There's no dog in the fight anymore. So it leaves this sort of equanimity. So whatever seems to be happening is just what's happening. It's perfectly managed somehow, and there's no buy-in on this is better than that. So what I notice happening is, um, actually, let me say one other thing about the way this goes when there's no sense of self anymore. When there's no sense of self, there's no continue. There's no continuity to anything. There's no continuous reality, right? Very it's hard. Moment it's, to moment it's reality. Literally impossible to for the egoic mind or the conceptual mind. It's literally impossible for it to understand that because it has to construct construct a sense of time, doership, and agency to think. But this is just not about concepts or the mind at all. So it's it's almost as if a reality appears and disappears, and then another reality appears and disappears. It feels very much like that. Um, so when I'm in this space, I've had people go, you say you don't have a buy-in or anything, but you sound very, you know, passionate about it or something. Part of it, that's just Angelo's personality, right? This, this character assignment. Um, but another part of it is I pick it up, I think from the people I'm talking to, to be honest, if somebody's interested in this, they have my attention. I'll talk about it because I, I can feel your exuberance for it. And I can feel how the awakening is sort of coming forward, right? It's, it is an interesting thing. And of course, you're going to you're gonna have my attention and I'm going to do what I can to facilitate it or you know, help you find any fixations that might be hanging around or whatever. But if I'm in a different setting uh, at work, uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, so if I'm at work, I'm not thinking about this at all. I'm just engaging whatever's happening and that has a very different texture to it. Uh, it has a very different experience to it. The things I talk about to people would be very different. So, uh, so I have no idea why it happens, to be honest. And there's no need for it to happen. It could stop. This could be the last conversation I have about it. Mm -hmm. And it would be perfectly okay with me. But let's hope not because you do such good work in it. Do you find it paradoxical that your job is to put people to sleep during the day and then you have this side job of waking people up? I've, I've heard that before. Yeah, it's just kind of funny. I think, I think I may have been predisposed to being an anesthesiologist because I was interested in states of consciousness, perhaps. Yes. Um, so there's that, but the, the feel, the feeling and experience of doing the work I do is more like mm -hmm. a, a protective role. I, do, I, I do enjoy it a lot. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, a physically protective role of somebody who's in a vulnerable position of having surgery and so forth. So, mm -hmm. 
there's the heart hard aspect of that that I, I suppose I enjoy. So I'm curious because out in spiritual, the spiritual world, there's a lot of conversation about manifestation and you are what you think. Mm. And a lot of what you speak of is getting out of the mind, getting out of what you think and getting into the body. So what do you think about like manifestation or these ideas of like you become what you think? Do you think that's true? So think about the movie The Matrix. Yes. Right. In the movie The Matrix, the story that you're believing inside The Matrix, right? The people you're meeting, all that stuff, uh, that that's going to be as real as it gets when you're in The Matrix. Mm-hmm. So you, that is real to the, to that person, right? That is their reality. To me, those are thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like that there's a world, that there's people, there's things happening. Those are thoughts to me, right? So in the world of thought, you could say it's real. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you could say if the thought's about thoughts about success are there frequently there's probably going to be success but only in relative in relation to what that world considers to be success does that make sense there's a lot of downfalls to it too right um if if you believe that everything you think is going to happen right what does that mean if you have say obsessive compulsive disorder and you have invasive thoughts probably not the best way to way to like perceive thoughts right because you were trying to push the quote-unquote bad thoughts away and the big, best way to have a very uncomfortable thought occur is to keep trying to push it away right that which you resist persists and all that so um i think there's a value to understanding focused thought but it's not so much thought it's more it's more like intention and behavior in life in the relative world so if somebody doesn't just doesn't have good life skills. They don't have a good, say, work ethic, or they grew up maybe in a situation where they feel uh, or just believe a lot of disempowering things about themselves. Those kind of messages can probably be helpful to start to understand, maybe not sit there and recite it to yourself, but understand that, that if I believe thoughts that say, you know, I can't accomplish anything and so forth, then the results might be along those lines because it's going to distract my attention in that direction. Whereas if I have, I understand the value of thoughts that say, you know, um, I can accomplish something. I can, you know, work in a team. I can make goal, you know, uh, set a goal and then achieve it. That starts to focus your attention and energy, and you might start noticing in life that you get results. Let's say. So, I think if somebody ha- has not developed that part of themselves, it's probably pretty valuable to understand those things. The not necessarily the law of attraction, but more like I would say like the law of in- maybe intention and effort. Because I think effort is the key, really, ultimately. Um, but yeah, you can definitely get bogged down in this whole idea of like good thoughts and bad thoughts and like that you're the chooser of the thoughts and all that. I I don't know about that so much. Um, because ultimately what you realize through the initial awakening is a thought is just a thought. They're like ghosts, clouds floating across the sky. So would you say, and I think I know what, what you're gonna, how you're going to answer this, but I, I'm not 100% sure. And it's a little painful, some of this stuff to realize it but would you say that like prayer and we've talked about this a little before we started recording but like belief in a god mm-hmm. and belief in um ancestors mm-hmm. and animism belief in like the spirit of the mountains and the is that that's all just thought well you asked us a few different questions yeah let me answer Please. the ones i that can remember in order so as far as prayer um one thing i like to say is if you pray for what you want including healing and freedom and all that you're praying to your own ego. If you play, if you pray for truth, regardless of how it affects you, you're praying to an extremely powerful force. You should be really careful 
that you're ready to get that if you pray for that. If you pray for, I want the truth of reality, regardless of what it does to me in my life, I don't care how it rearranges everything if it has to, all I want is the absolute truth, don't say that unless you mean it. Because it's a very, very powerful intention or prayer. So prayer works. Okay, that's number one. Number two, go ahead. Wait, stop there for one sec, because it kind of plays into your question, because I've heard you say at times, um, and, and experiencing it in that that moment that I expressed to you, that there is some kind of life force that you have said, call it grace, call it something, or that this is, it's not even you that's actually at some point creating the awakening or that it's happening maybe through you. But what is that essence that you would call it? Is it a life force? What is it? Well, it really depends on what stage of realization you're talking about. Because it will feel very much like there's all the way up until even non-dual realization. You can experience what I might just call like Brahman, Brahman consciousness, where there's literally just no boundary anywhere. There, it's it's incredibly remarkable. It's like a kind of like a wonder. It's really like a wonderland. It's like a free floating wonderland that has no ground or ceiling or front or back, inside or outside. Um, it's as intimate as it gets. The experience is as intimate as it gets, and all the textures of experience are without boundary and without discrete specific location. It's like really a fun experience. What you don't realize when that's happening is that there's still, there can still be something in the background trying to, trying to reify it, trying to turn it into something. And it will turn it into a, a universal consciousness, a background awareness. It's, it still wants to make it into something, some very fundamental thing. Or another way of saying it is, it's trying to, it's trying to come back through the illusion of the arrow of perception to a source of perception that can actually stop operating. When that stops operating, all those questions you asked will be answered and it will be really, really obvious. Very obvious. It'll be the most obvious thing ever, but I don't want to answer the questions. I want anyone who's really interested in that to find out for themselves. Yeah. I also want to answer the one about uh, um, animism. Mm -hmm. I actually find something very fascinating about animism. Uh, if you look at like say Native American folklore or any culture, an indigenous culture that that uh, uh, where animism is a part of their mythology or part of their their spiritual experience and so forth. If you look at that through the lens, say, of maybe a little bit of a uh, cynical Western you know, paternalistic God kind of religious uh, lens, okay, and I'm kind of stereotyping that, but it it exists. If you look at it through that lens, it's kind of like. Animism seems silly. Oh, God's in a tree, right? But when you see how reality actually is unbound from identity structures, uh, you see how absurd it is to believe that there's like God that looks like a man that has a certain gender that has all these rules that are su are suspiciously close to the way our own egos function and what we want. You know uh, that that's real, but the the aliveness of the the physical world right in front of you, the rocks and trees, that's not real. That's absurd to me. So animism to me is much more like how this actually is. Because mm -hmm. consciousness is- Yeah, but I don't, everything. yeah. But even even then there's no need to impute a, uh, an entity into the tree. Mm -hmm. That tree is just pure aliveness. And it's not a tree over there. You, you're not apart from it. Okay, yeah. so then I, I guess that what I'm kind of 
where I keep going back to is a lot of the beginning of the conversation, like a lot of things that come through in these psychedelic journeys for a lot of people, me included, are things like that, you know, like um, gods and goddesses can appear or um, that I, like a, a, an understanding of what a soul or a, a, a spirit, a spirit of the plant can come through all these. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to call them, but all these things that in some way may be reifying the personhood and in some, but, but the, they're so comforting and, yeah. and so helpful. Yeah. And like, I'm curious, do, for instance, do you think that we do have a soul? Like that individuals have a soul? Would it, well, I would have to ask you, what is a soul? What does a soul mean to you? Like, what would a soul actually be for you? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. So it would be, and I mean, this is just my, I don't really know how to define it, but my definition would be like the spark part of me that had been alive through lifetimes and who has like my deepest calling and my deepest knowing within it and that is guiding me if I can pull enough of the conditioning away to really hear it. That's been guiding me for lifetimes and will continue to and will live on past this life. Mm. Do you think if it manifests in another lifetime, will it remember anything you remember or know anything about you at all as an individual? No. Your experiences or proclivities or memories or learnings? Some. Uh, Not about some? Stephanie, but a little bit. Yeah. It'll carry some of my essence. Okay. But I might be a man. I might be, you know, I, I don't know. It's not like Stephanie will be in that soul, but I don't know. That's what I, a concept yeah. that I. Do you think that essence is apart from the essence that's going to maybe come through her or through me or through an animal or maybe even through. Gosh, I want what we call so. physical matter or what we call the quantum fields. Yeah. When you say it like that, no, but it's yeah. hard. Why, to why would it need that. to be, right? That's how, that's where my mind goes, but. These are the kinds of questions I, I don't want to answer for you because it doesn't matter what I think and it doesn't even matter what I realize. It matters. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to find out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But your 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 whole emotional, what I notice is your emotional landscape. That's what I notice. That The answer is there, right there and how you feel about this. Yeah. And all the different emotions that are involved in it. And, the, and you kind of said a few clues like it's so comforting. Would you Would you like to be free from the need to be comforted? Yes. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. I would like that. Okay, wait. I just forgot my thought with that <laughs> with that perfect question. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wait. Where were we? Soul. No, I know where. I know where I wanted to go. Your pointings have been incredibly helpful. Um, and so one of the things that I have felt that you have uh, maybe it's through inquiry or directing. You have pointed again and again to the senses as gateways. Mm. So could you explain that? Because for me, that has been what I have found has shifted things for me. So could you explain that for somebody that doesn't understand yeah. what that actually feels like, looks like, means? Like, why are the sense gates away? to experience that which you don't want to name or mm. talk about. Yeah. Well, it really is it really is a matter of timing. It matters sort of where you are in this in this unbinding process, let's say, to some degree. So when I make videos on YouTube, I might talk about the senses one day, then the other day I'm talking about self-inquiry, then I'm talking about mind identification, then I'm talking about shame. So I jump all over the place, but there is a sort of progression to this. And um it's often not particularly helpful to talk about the senses too much early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, I'm more inclined to 
to have people turn inward toward consciousness in various ways through self-inquiry, through inquiry into the nature of thought and so forth. Um, at, at some point, however, what you realize, whether it's directly and obviously, or you just sort of intuit it, is that all of consciousness, which is the raw material of everything you ever considered to be your life and the world and beliefs about people and beliefs about yourself, all of that, which is all just one thought in this moment, another thought in another moment, and the background perceptual apparatus that's experiencing those thoughts, all of that at once, that's what I mean by consciousness, you see that that is actually simply a reflection of the senses. It's a reflection of the senses, but that's uninteresting early on because what you think the senses are is consciousness, is, is your own distorted idea of what consciousness is. You only think the senses are something in reference to what you think they can or can't do for you as a, as a seeming person, mm. but a cognitively structured person. Once that stops feeling so real to you uh, and you become interested in presence, raw presence, uh, the, the textures of presence, and or you have profound experiences like non-dual experiences, whether it's with psychedelics or completely outside of psychedelics, it can happen both ways. Then you actually know you're onto something. You're like, okay, no, there's something here that is altogether beyond anything I've ever thought, anything I've ever believed, and even... The, even the the release afforded by letting go of thought and belief, there's something beyond all of that here, and it's 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 so juicy, it's so fascinating and interesting. But at the same time, everything gets very simple when you see that all of those forms of thought, belief, history, past, future, knowledge, all of it is actually just consciousness. It's this one sort of nebulous substance of of consciousness. Call it pure being. Call it I. Call it I am. Uh, and then there's five senses. There's nowhere else to look. But things get so simple. There's, and that's why in Buddhism they really define it simply. It's just they call it the six sense gates. So there's the five, body, like essentially bodily senses, and then consciousness or cognizance. Mm -hmm. They just call it a sense. And at some point it does feel just very much like a sense, but it's a reflective sense, which is funny. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really interested in where what's being reflected. Once you get interested in what's being reflected. Now you're in good territory. Mm -hmm. Now you don't need anything except the visual field. When you when you start to see what's really there, and what's really not there, um, changes everything. Changes everything. Uh, another way of saying this for someone who maybe isn't completely clear on what I'm pointing to, to have that initial shift, that initial awakening, is a very. I don't want to say it's a heady experience because it's not a conceptual experience. But it's very much up here. It's it's a it's an expansion of mind. It's an awakening of mind, an awakening of vast, unbound, unfiltered consciousness. The deeper awakenings are actually a complete alteration in the way you experience three dimensional time, uh, three dimensional space and time. The the physical world that you think is physical, the physical world that you think has objects apart from you out there, deconstructs itself. So it's a whole different thing. It's a whole it's a whole different order of experience altogether. So I know you went to Disney World. What is Disney World like for uh, an awakened being? <laughs> oh, it's a blast! I love it. We went to we went to Disneyland this last Land. time, and uh, it was with a, a handful of other people who are empty of self. So that was really fun too. Uh, it's a it's a blast. I mean, it's you go through a phase with this, with with waking up before the self structure completely collapses where 
you're so sensitive to everything that it, you can get overloaded easily because you just become so porous and sensitive, which is good. But sometimes at some point you go beyond that even where even though it's like super stimulating, there's nothing left that can just say no to it anymore. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left that can say this is too much for me. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what situation you're in. It's just that's what's happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a blast. Wow. Yeah, it's fun. So what do you think about love? Love? Mm -hmm. Well, I think most of our, um, I'll say not the, the the physical activities of the body that I'm talking about, like mm -hmm. not the physical connections we make and raising children and stuff, but the, the ideas we have about love, the beliefs we have about love and the beliefs about how we relate to love and love affects us and what we need love. Almost all of that is sort of egoic in, in my experience to some degree. But it's a, it is a sort of reflection of uh, a very profound um, appreciation for the for any experience at all for for there to be any experience, and somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, mm -hmm. there is the the conditioned human response that has a certain value system. Of course, if it didn't, then our species wouldn't propagate, or any other species wouldn't propagate. Meaning, when you have a child you you physically take care of that child and you quote unquote love that child more than your neighbor's child and and the child across you know the street and then the child on the other side of the world that those those mammalian tendencies and all that those are necessary for our, for us to to propagate and so forth and and they're sort of built into our our survival instincts and those are important of course those don't go away with awakening those don't go away with realization but your attachment to them does go away your identification with them goes completely away. And so it can be a, quite a different experience. Um, we, In one way of saying it, you could say you, you feel a sort of love for everything or just a love for, for experience. Um, but it's not dualistic. So the love is the experience. So on that topic, um, what are emotions in general? Mm. You know, maybe... Not love because we kind of went through that one, but all the all the bad ones that we all have so often. What are the bad ones? Fear, shame, grief, sorrow, self loathing, self loathing and emotion. I don't know. Um, rejection is that yeah. an emotion? I don't know. Maybe I'm not saying exactly emotions, but mm -hmm. all the feelings and bodily sensations that come up that are so uncomfortable yeah. that you often point to. You know, feeling more, going into more to. Um, release mm. what are what are they are they just energy moving through another energy i think that's a good way to, to regard it as energy because it because it doesn't give you anything to do with it other than just feel it and experience it you know i think that's a pretty skillful means honestly um so it's energy moving through i know we talked about this before we recorded there isn't really a body but there is something that's containing the energy of the emotion that Ruby character of Stephanie is feeling because it's like it, there's not enough room to hold it all so it gets stuck inside of that well you clear what I'm saying I, I, I what my experience is that the body has a tremendous capacity for this okay. the body has a tremendous capacity for for moving energy and handling energy and so forth it's the the seeming um, discord between the mind and body that causes the trouble it causes us to repress. It causes us to try to mishandle energy. When I say try to, 
I don't mean tried to, I mean habituated to doing it. Yeah. It's, again, these are just learned uh, emotionally, empathically impressed tendencies that we learn from very young childhood. It's just there. And we find ourselves in it. And that's where the trouble lies. That's why it feels so stuck. That's why it feels... But what's what's really ironic here is the only reason it feels stuck or wrong, et cetera, is because we believe it shouldn't be there. That we believe there are bad emotions or negative emotions. That's my experience. The fact that we resist so much um, is what makes it uncomfortable. It's not the the quality of the emotion or even the conditions in which it arises, right? So sometimes I'll say it like this. If you think about an emotion as an energy, right, and you could pretty easily take on that we uh, pick them up from other people. We The way we might react to sadness, say, whether it's overly demonstrative or whether it's just feeling it and emoting and, and not making a story about it or whether it's completely repressing it and pretending it's not there. We pick that up from our parents, right? We pick it up from our families and we teach it to each other and on, on, ongoing um, like that generation after generation. So the way we learn to to navigate or manage an emotion is completely conditioned, completely habituated. Um, if you think of that as a as that that energy as an entity, let's say, or um, something that has been passed down from generation to generation, sometimes it's helpful to think about as a lost child, right? This child has had the door shut on it over and over and over and over. Like how many people say hello to shame? How many people want to open the door to shame? It's like it's like this thing you just don't want to even look at for a long time. You don't even know it's there, right? Uh, but what if you just open the door to it and you just say, you, you can be here, right? Why not? You can be here. There's an intensity here. I can feel it. There's something, there's a thought that says I don't want this or something's wrong or something's wrong with me. That's a thought though, right? You can't get down here without really, well, you can, but it requires a lot of work and you have to probably be set up pretty karmically predisposed to it. But after an awakening, you can do this. You can realize like, yeah, no, the thought that says something's really wrong with me, I hate myself. Well, that's, those are thoughts. This is a feeling. This is an experience in the body. This is energetic. And those thoughts don't necessarily apply to it. They've been applied to it through through habit, but they're not intrinsic to it. So now you can say, okay, you can be here. You have all the space you want here. You know, you have you have one hundred percent of my attention. That's when you start to really know what love is, because it's just a lost child that just wants attention. Everything in the universe just wants to be what it is. That's all it wants. And the mo- the best gift you can give anything or anyone is your attention. Your non discriminate attention. Your non judging attention. Just your simple attention. Contact. Hmm. So. So one of the things that you had talked about earlier is we're talking about early conditioning and what happens as we just pass on these ways of conditioning and even language itself makes us think there's a you and a me. Mm. How would you raise a child to be born or how would you raise a child in languaging and a way that would help them from a very early age have an idea of what the reality was really like. Mm. Would it be some of those words like we? Is <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> instead of like you and me, like 
would you have a whole different language? How would you go about raising a child mm. in an awakened state so that when we think of, you know, one of the things you had said earlier that does in some way motivate some of what you do is that energy in the world that does cause harm and how it does get perpetuated. So if we did want to shift that, if the world really does need a raising of consciousness to create a more beautiful world, how would we do that as parents? How do we do that? Yeah. What would your answer to that be? Well, the first, second, third response to that is always, and I get this a lot from people, is wake up yourself as much as you possibly can. When the self-structure drops away, you'll know the answer to that question for sure. Um, that's number one, is often, you know, I, I kind of go, well, why do you, why are you trying to force your kid to wake up? Why don't you just keep waking up? You got enough work to do yourself, don't you? What are you worried about them for? But, she at the like same time, but at the same time, you do, of course you care about your kids. You want the best for your kids and all that. Um, with kids, it's important to say about some of these, especially deeper um, realizations that occur, non-dual specifically, you might not want a five or six-year-old experiencing non-duality all the time because they may not develop good motor skills, literally. They need to actually learn about physical boundaries in the world and so forth. And they need to learn about language. They need to learn to communicate and so forth. Um, but the the best thing you can do, and, and this goes back to waking up yourself, but the best thing you can do for that child doesn't really have to do with the language you're using as much. Um, yes, the language we use does reinforce the sense of I and you and moving through time and you know, delayed gratification and thinking in terms of the future. We, we do teach kids that, and some of that probably is necessary for some aspects of being alive in the society. But that's not what really messes kids up. That's not what messes kids up. What messes kids up is uh, deep, deeply repressed emotional uh, experiences, tones in you that you pretend aren't there and don't know are there, and you're you're impressing them upon your child. So things like gaze aversion, not not going to physical contact with your child, not knowing how to comfort your child because you can't even comfort yourself. Those are the kind of things that kind of mess kids up, to be honest. Now, if you if you can straighten out your whole emotional landscape as your kids are growing up and 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 you're awake yourself, beyond that, I think it'll just it'll be obvious because you'll see your child with unconditional love and you'll see what they need, what they need for development, both in the relative world, in this world, mm -hmm. and whether or not they have that energetic proclivity for waking up, mm -hmm. which they may or may not. You'll see all of that clearly, and then you'll know exactly what to do. Yeah, Does that makes it's sense? really interesting, very much so, because I'm thinking too of, you know, going back in the, at a time when you spoke about it, a lot of the resistance that we have to feeling those emotions, whatever it is, whether it's sadness, shame, grief. So in our, in my own conditioning, in a lot of our conditioning, we weren't raised to feel those things. Mm -hmm. So then, what I noticed is, well, then I couldn't really hold those things, right? Because if I'm avoiding them myself. If I have an aversion to feeling my own pain and suffering, then how do I really hold someone else's mm -hmm. in a way that is loving and what you just said, just present for and be able to hold it? So I think that's very true is doing your own deep work is the best thing that you can do for your kids. And it's layers and layers. It's not necessarily an overnight process. It is some of the deep shadow work, yep. getting comfortable in your own body. And then being comfortable with being uncomfortable too is really important. Really important. So we talk about a lot about that, being comfortable in your own body and all this stuff. That's great. But a lot of this is about actually being uncomfortable sometimes and being, so okay, uncomfortable, and being okay, by the way. Yeah. And being okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Um, it was interesting at the conference. That was what a lot of the therapists were talking about. It's like first bringing people that have been terribly dissociated through trauma into their body. So yeah. they feel their body, but then allowing them to have the capacity to hold uncomfortable um, emotions or energies mm -hmm. within their body. That's like, that's what healing is. So it, yeah. it coincides with what you're saying. Yeah. But just listening to you guys talk about, you know, how this happens as when we're children, why is it, why does it happen? Why can't we just live in a tuna week? Why do we have to go into the conditioned, repressed, separate state? Why can't we just, why can't we just be in conscious, in enlightened consciousness all along? Like, why do we have to go into that individualistic, layered resistance? Yeah. I, I don't know if there's a why to it, honestly. Like, I mean, I could say, hey, it's a, it's a, unstable level of consciousness in the human evolution that we're experiencing an uncomfortable level and we need to evolve beyond it sort of feels like that but i don't know if that's objectively true or anything like that um it certainly happens that's for sure yeah. uh and i don't even know if you need to you don't need to know why it happens to wake up from it uh you don't need to know why it happens to directly investigate it in fact asking why too much sometimes not to knock your question down but Asking why too much puts us in our head. Instead of why, why don't we just say what? What am I feeling? Or who am I? But to go back to what you said about doing that deep inner work, that's the best thing you can do for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, single, you have pets, no pets, you, you're completely reclusive or you interact with people constantly. The best thing you can do for yourself and everyone around you, period, is do a lot of deep emotion work. Unless you're inclined to wake up. If you're inclined, for, if you're inclined to wake up, that's the best thing you can do. And you can put everything aside for a while and to, to, to wake up. And then, then then it will come to you. You'll know when to do the shadow work. But you you may not be interested in that. Like there are going to be people listening to this who are going to say, this is the most interesting thing I've ever heard. This is 100% what I've always been interested in. You're going to hear from them. I guarantee it. You're also going to find people who think it doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, it doesn't even, what, what's this person talking about? Um, and then everything in between. But some people sort of know I'm just not ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. that's, I'm not ready to like dismantle my identity. And that's fine. You don't mm -hmm. need, to, this isn't anything anyone needs. Right. But you'll know, excuse me, you'll know if you're interested in it. And if, and short of that, emotion work. Do, do the emotion work. That's the best thing anyone can do. The body, the sensations in the body get out of the head, the mm -hmm. thinking and putting a label to what you're feeling and just feel. Mm -hmm. That's a very, that's a very, good and direct way of doing it sometimes people are so in their head and there's so much repressed emotion or they're disassociating that you have to actually start by just going what do i actually feel mm. i don't feel anything no what do i feel well i'm avoiding calling that person because i'm afraid they're gonna you know remind me that i you know whatever and it's like oh okay so oh i'm feeling avoidance oh maybe i'm actually a little mad at them oh i'm feeling anger you know sometimes you have to trace it back through the story to even know what you're feeling when you're really disassociated from your own emotions. Right. Sometimes yeah. you actually need the mind at first yeah. mm -hmm. to then yep. let go of the mind. Totally depends where you're at. If you're right. really disassociated or you just have massive emotional repression, mm -hmm. then sometimes you really have to even do some inquiry even to find out what you're feeling right. at all. Yeah. Okay. So a little off the wall question, but some people say we are not, it's one in a billion that we are in base reality and that this is some sort of simulation. Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's really interesting because um, the sense of you being a you apart from anything and everything is certainly a simulation. 
it's 100% a simulation. Um, at some point, realization goes so deep that you realize that the whole concept of a base reality is absurd. Mm -hmm. There can't be a base reality. There's no reality. There's no actually existing real reality. There is no way that things are. And that's the that becomes the most obvious thing there ever could be. But I, I don't know how else to say it. I don't I don't have words for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember when that hit me after all this this collapse of like layer after layer of identity. And I that that landed. It was like there is no way things are. And then immediately what I noticed and I knew this intuitively was this is exactly what people don't want to know. Nobody really wants to know this. You can't want to know this. You can't want this. But, it, but it's perfectly, but it's more than okay. <laughs> <laughs> For no one. For no one. Yeah. And no one there. No. What would your top pointings be? Like, for example, I've heard you say, who am I? Mm. What? What are some of those pointings that you could give somebody that's listening who is interested and feels kind of a pull to this. Mm -hmm. What are some of those inquiries? Sure. I made a video about this today, but so I won't, I'll try not to use the ones I said on that one. Um, the first thing I would say is start with what I mentioned before is like asking yourself, what do I really, what do I really want? Is this what I really want to wake up? Even you don't have to know what it means. You don't have to know something in you will feel it. But if this is what you really, really want, then just say yes to the feeling right now, like wherever you feel it, even if it feels like it's in the body or outside the body or somewhere you can't define. If, if something in you is just like, okay, this is where I want to go, then I want you to say yes to it. And I mean, yes, experientially, not like verbally say yes to it in your mind and then expect something to happen. I mean, just open to it and just sit with it and just touch into it and just let it germinate. But it's like a seed. It's like a seed. This process is so mysterious. It's ineffable. It's so mysterious that the smallest instincts, if they're fully authentic, will have profound, profound effects. But you may not notice anything right away. That's what I want you to do is just, just really plant that seed and just stay with it for, for a bit. As long as you want. You can stay with it the rest of the day if you feel like it. But just say yes to that part of yourself that knows where to go. Even when the mind's going, wait, I don't know where to go. I don't know what he's talking about. It doesn't make any sense. It's okay. That's the mind. That's thoughts. Something in you is just, just pulling you down or just going down deeper, 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 or in or out or wherever, whatever it feels like. But there's something instinctually that knows where to go. Just say yes to it and let yourself go there and let yourself let go. And know that this does not happen in time. It's not a time-bound process. So it can be happening now and a month from now at the same time. And you won't know it until that the conditions arise for it to appear, appear as if it's a month from now. Then you'll know. But my point is, don't worry about the timeline. Don't worry about the time frame. Don't worry about any kind of understanding. This is not about understanding. Just touch in, say yes to it, and just let it take you. <laughs>